All right, guys. Hey, just a quick intro before hopping into the interview with Scott Stallings. Uh, we recorded this on Tuesday, June 30th, and uh, Scott was an awesome guest, super patient with me. Um, for the most part, we, we went without air, and then at the end of the interview, had a three or four technological issues, uh, microphone cutting out, Zoom call cutting out. So he stuck with me. He gutted it out, and uh, I think we had an awesome conversation, awesome dude. Um, I couldn't be more happy here on, on Thursday evening to have looked at the scores for um, the Rocket Mortgage Tournament up in Detroit this week, and uh, Scott is tied for first at 7-under. So I know he, wakes, he works way too hard for us to take any credit for that, but uh, pretty cool to talk to the guy on Tuesday and then on Thursday seeing him shoot up the leaderboard. So Scott, I, I don't think you'll listen to this, but if you do... Um, Get after it, man. Finish the deal. We'll be pulling for you Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, appreciate the time. And for anybody listening, uh, this is a good one. Let us know what you think. And uh, enjoy our guest, Scott Stalling. See ya. All right, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Low Side Podcast. This is episode number 35. Uh first episode in a long time and not only that it's the first virtual episode here on a zoom call so um pretty excited tonight my guest after a couple weeks of some back and forth finally we're able to coordinate getting together is a three-time pga tour winner i'm sure that never gets old hearing even if it's coming from me but uh mr scott stalling scott i appreciate you coming on and joining us man yeah man thanks for having me Absolutely. Um, and I don't know if you've listened to any of the other podcasts. I don't expect you to, but where I always go on the front end is just uh, kind of give us, you know, we hear three-time PGA Tour winner, but that's obviously not all you are. Um, kind of give us the origin story and the, the elevator pitch on Scott Stallings. Uh, man, I was born in Massachusetts. I grew up in Tennessee. Uh, played golf at Tennessee Tech. Uh, this is my 10th year on tour. Um, I married my wife, Jennifer. Uh, this is our 13th. We married 13 years in August. I have two kids. I have a seven-year-old son, Finn, and a four-year-old daughter, Millie. And we live in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, that's uh, the short and sweet of it. There's a lot more in between, but uh, hopefully we'll get into a little bit more. But that's uh, the short biography. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge details guy, so that's... <laughs> <laughs> kind of ask and I'll tell, but, uh, that's, that's it for now. We'll see what else we get into. So I'm curious, how's a guy like to me, Massachusetts is like the most Northern Northeast, like historical <laughs> state and Knoxville and Tennessee is like as true South as it can be. How, how'd you end up there? Yeah. I told people from a long time, I was like from really, really South Boston. Um, so my mom's from New England, my dad's from Tennessee and I was born up there. We lived up there for two and a half, three years, and uh, they didn't want to. They were done with the winter. Dad had an opportunity to work in Tennessee, and we moved. And but, uh, man, to be honest, I knew more New England summers uh, than I knew any summer in the South. Uh, my grandparents lived up there. We had a bunch of my aunts and uncles, and everyone, much on my mom's side of the family. So, predominantly, most of my summers were in New England with them, and my parents would kind of come up sporadically throughout. You know, based on their work schedule, and uh, so it's a pretty nice growing up in the South for the most part. Spending the summers in New England was pretty great. 
Yeah. So um, when you were, you know, growing up and going and spending summertime in New England, um, was there anybody like, obviously you were golfing, I'm assuming, but was there anybody who kind of like sparked that interest for you or how did you kind of find your path to golf versus other sports? Tiger Woods. <laughs> anyone, <laughs> anyone that's in my age that doesn't reference Tiger is they're either lying or in denial or both or, you know, have some kind of crazy facade that if say the Tiger didn't affect them because uh, I was uh, like any kid around that age, I was, I played everything, baseball, basketball, soccer, and golf was kind of something I always did in between. And, um, you know, and then Tiger came on, wins the Masters. Like, okay, this this is different. I started kind of play a little bit more, played a little more, and then I made my first hole-in-one, and it was like, this is all I want to do. And then I was hooked. And started playing junior events, and, you know, kind of – I was a late bloomer in terms of uh, junior golf. and you know, college recruiting and everything like that. But man, I was, once you kind of get anyone that knows in golf, once you kind of get the bug, man, it's unlike anything else. <laughs> and I mean, I definitely felt susceptible, but uh, it's pretty cool to see, especially at this point in my career to, you know, I've seen two versions of Tiger. You know, I've seen the the struggle. I've seen the player of the year. I've seen the Masters champ. I've seen the comeback player of the year, I guess three now. But, um, you know, my third year on tour, Tiger was player of the year and won five times. And I think people forgot that. And it's like, no, man, I I played out here when that was happening. Like, I didn't – by no means do I have any reference to, like, the, you know, the year 2000. I mean, I was still in high school. But, you know, in my version, that was the, the glimpse. I mean, the only other season was probably 15 with Jordan, just the dominant performance. But – um. And then to see last year with the excitement of him winning the Masters and just how he can continue to push the game and, and carry the sport in the direction. So it's pretty cool to be able to have the guy that inspired you to pursue a career in professional golf and still be able to play and compete against him while he's out there. And that's kind of shows the longevity of the game and, you know, how age is just kind of a number. And me saw Phil last week. I mean, he's leading after two rounds. He's 50 <laughs> years old. So yeah. It's pretty cool to still be able to play and compete with those guys. They're still out here doing it. Yeah, I had a conversation with somebody recently and I said, um, and some, you know, we're very fortunate to have grown up and watched this journey of both of those guys. But in some sad way, it's it's kind of disappointing that there's more memories in the past than there are probably to be made. Um, and there's a not so distant future in golf that doesn't involve either one of those guys playing, you know, as many events certainly as they are playing now. So um, definitely. A, a pretty good memory book to look back on for all of us. Um, have you ever had? Agree. Yeah, have you ever had the chance to play with Tiger? Yeah, I've played with him quite a few times, and uh, it, it's definitely enjoyable playing with him, not in front of him. <laughs> uh, behind behind him is totally fine, but right in front of him, you realize that uh, they the fans are not there for you. Yeah. <laughs> So the first time I actually played with them was at Memorial and we were in the second to last group on Saturday in a twosome. And the first hole, I probably had a two footer for par and he probably had a three or four footer for par. And he looked at me and he said, you should putt first. And I thought he was trying to like big time me and, you know, all right, this is how it's going to be like. And he said, no, I think you should putt first. And I said, no, you go ahead. Well, he puts it, knocks it in. 
And I realized as soon as he knocked it, I was like, oh, he's trying to do me a favor. <laughs> and uh, he just smiled. It was like, I told you, man, because I mean, they could, my caddy could have had a megaphone and a air horn and anything he possibly could to get someone's attention to get him to stop running, but they could completely care less what I was doing. And the rest of the, if it was anywhere close, I put it first <laughs> for the rest. Every time we got to the green, it's like, I'll go. Wow. Just to be, just to try to get done before he got done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the term, you know, golf is obviously in a very, very good spot with all, all the guys, and I think social media and all the people kind of creating their own brands. But I, obviously, a different level when, uh, you know, he's in the field. So it's interesting to hear it from somebody who's been in the in the trenches in front of it and and with it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Very much uh, so. But. That was my first experience and I'll never forget it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, I kind of want to go back. So you mentioned you were a late bloomer as far as the junior golf side. I mean, what age were you when you really started to feel like, okay, you know, I have some game here and I have game that, you know, maybe even at that point wasn't looking at professional, but Hey, I can go pay for school. When did you start putting those pieces together? I don't know. I joke with the people a lot of time. It's a day-to-day thing with golf. <laughs> some days you're on top, some days it beats you down. And um, I think as long as you kind of stay humble, it kind of keeps you, you know, grounded throughout the highs and the lows. But I don't know, <laughs> you know, sort of started developing late, you know, 15, 16, 17, started doing the, you know, the pretty heavy in junior golf and uh, just started seeing a little bit of college interest and, and started, you know, I started pursuing it as much as they were pursuing me. Not that I was highly sought after by any reason, but, uh, uh, I guess, you know, kind of middle teens and, you know, into high school and then transition. Then I went to Tennessee tech and, uh, I was fortunate enough to play for a coach that had had some PGA tour experience and, uh, was very at the beginning was super hard on me with, you know, his expectations were far higher than my own. And which was great. I mean, I was 18, 19 years old. I had no idea, you know, what it was to pursue golf at the highest level or, you know, let alone what a, what a career in professional golf would look like. He just told me that he felt like I had what it was going to take to, to, to at least give it a shot. And so, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, take his uh, push in the, and nudge in the right direction and use it as a positive and, you know, be able to pursue. and and I was fortunate. I was all American my junior year and uh, had a really good college career and was able to play mini tours for uh, about a year and a half, maybe a little bit more. And then a uh, year on now the corn ferry was the nationwide at the time in 2010. And then uh, now 10 years on the PGA tour. Yeah. So I got to ask you, um, you know, whenever anybody mentions nationwide or web, um, we're, we're here in Wichita, Kansas, which, uh, you've probably visited to play, uh, now it's called the air capital. Now it's called the Wichita open. It used to be called the air capital classic, um, mm-hmm. which they had a pretty rowdy. I think they, we claim that we have the, uh, waste management 17, Paul. Yeah. We have the, the corn fairies version of the waste management, um, par three. Do you remember anything about playing that course? Yeah, I do. I actually stayed, uh, man, uh, there's a, like a, a bar or something that's in town and a guy that, uh, runs it, uh, lives on the course and he was our host family 
and okay. we didn't know anything about it. And I has had a nickname like Lefty or <laughs> something. Uh, and uh, like I, I knew him as I mean, his name could have been John for whatever. And I just referenced like oh, I'm staying with this guy, and they're like, oh, that's not his name. And then he had like some nickname of some bar or restaurant that he owned that was like the highlight of the of the tournament for people. I mean, we didn't really know anything. I mean, we were just happy to be there. And uh, but uh, that was a great event. Uh, fans came out, and but the 17th hole was. I mean, especially at that point in my career, I'd never seen anything like that. And to be heckled and cheered and booed and all that stuff that happens, especially to to now have played 16 at Waste Management quite a few times. And uh, I mean, that's as close as you're ever going to get it. And uh, they do a good job at that event. Yeah, I think I know who that is. Um, if it, it may not ring a bell, he might own a bar downtown called Mort's Martini Bar. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That, if that... that probably is it. I, okay. I mean, you meet a lot of people in professional golf, but I, I strongly like every night is like, where are you going? He's like, I'm about to go to work. Yeah. It's like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. It's like, who works at that time? Yeah, and uh, but they were super nice and uh, took good care of us uh, while we were there for the event. Yeah, so um, you know it's kind of cool having that event around here all the time too. I literally used to go walk out to the parking lot on Mondays in high school and college, and and you know beg for a bag. And every now and then I would end up with one. How did you uh, when you were on like in the mini tours and on the nationwide tour? How what was your caddy situation? Did you have a permanent guy, or were you going week to week, or buddies, or how were you doing it? I had a permanent guy on the when I was on the Nationwide Tour, and he transitioned into the PGA Tour with me. But man, many tours. I mean, we did carts, we did carried our own. My wife caddied for me. I mean, anything you possibly could to save a little money. And you know, uh, mini tour golf was a lot different then than it was now. Like you could make a really good living. I mean, one year I think Ted Potter made over three hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that's. Uh, I mean, that doesn't even remotely exist now. Um, in between the e-golf and the Hooters tour and kind of all the other stuff that was taking place, uh, you know, there was an ample opportunity to play kind of throughout. And um, But if you can think of it, I probably did it <laughs> in terms of that, having a chance to play. I did 12 weeks in a row driving all over the country with my wife. We had a Honda Element and, you know, the car that you could – like fold out the doors and do everything you possibly can. And I mean, we spent so much time in that car and I was, uh, you know, memories that we'll never, we'll never get again. But uh, <laughs> we had some interesting times uh, throughout the, those couple of years. That's what I was going to ask you. So, you know, obviously the PGA tour is the goal and now you're here. And because of that, it, it probably makes it a lot easier to look back on the grind with some positivity um, is there anything from like those mini tour days that you think back on and go, man, that was a interesting scenario or I can't believe, you know, is there anything that when I ask that pops into your mind? Uh, I remember playing an event and it was funny. We were in Hilton Head and we drove by, we flew out of Savannah to go to Connecticut last week. And I, we uh, drove by this hotel that we were staying at and we did like Priceline, like we were, we could have worked for Priceline. We learned how to manage that <laughs> website so well. And uh, um, two two stories. Uh, one main tour event, Philadelphia, Mississippi. We ate uh, 19 meals in a row at Subway. Wow. Um, and then uh, 
it got to the point where we started it out and then it became a challenge between my wife and I, <laughs> like, let's see how many we can go. <laughs> and we ate the whole week and then we came back home and we were like, let's do it one more time. And, and we did it again. But, uh, we actually, the, getting back to the event in Savannah, uh, we got rained. It was supposed to be a four day event with $50,000 to the winner. It was like, I mean, any, if you could be there, they had a qualifier, they had everything you possibly could. Well, it like torrentially flooded for like three days. And this is like everyone was scrapping and clawing and trying to play and do whatever they could. And this is before Netflix or any kind of streaming. So Redbox was the thing. Well, our hotel didn't have a DVD player. And I remember after the first two days, like, all right, we we'll got to figure something out. I mean, it, it's flooding. We don't know if we're going to play. We've been in this hotel room forever. What are we like? What's going to happen? And we went to Walmart right down the road and there's this DVD player is like 30 bucks. It's like, I'm going to buy this thing. And if I play bad, I'm going to return it. I mean, it was horrible. And I ended up, we ended up playing the event and playing 36 holes in one day. Talk about like truly gambling, just a 36 (laughs) hole shootout for 50 grand. And like, it was a big purse for at that day for me to, and I finished third by myself. I birdied the last like two or three holes and finished third by myself. I can't remember exactly what I made but we still to this day have that DVD player I, there's no telling if it works but just this story it's like uh you know kind of sits in our bonus room it's not plugged in it's just kind of a, a focal point because that's a story that I'll never forget I remember just grinding like man there's I don't know if we can spend this 30 bucks I don't know if we can do this I don't know if we can do that and just to kind of give us something to do for the day because we weren't going to play for a while and I mean we got to figure out something and kind of go from there Yes, yeah, definitely. Uh, we get asked about that all the time when people come to our house. A little, little bit of nostalgia for you there. For sure. For so, sure. Um, you know, so obviously many tours and then you mentioned 2010 full time on the nationwide. Um, and then, you know, when I look at your career, 2011 is obviously a, a big year. Were you starting to feel it click um, in that 2010 nationwide season, knowing, hey, you know, I'm probably going to have some status moving to the PGA Tour the next season? Well, I mean, just the way it was set up with Q School and everything, like I had my – I mean, if, you, if you're ever going to have a, a chance to kind of freewheel it at Q School, it was the situation that I was in because I had my full card. Like I couldn't improve my nationwide status any more than I already was. Like I was already like the – most exempt you could be so it was you know the tour bust and it's funny we were talking about it uh my buddy scott brown who i'm staying with this week here in uh detroit we played like we we rented a house together in uh there at orange county national in orlando we're on like the third or fourth hole and it's just par five dogleg right and i hit it way over the corner way down there and he put his arm around me and said, Bubba, if you don't get your card this week, you're never going to get it. <laughs> and I, I finished, you know, ninth, 10th, 11th, something like that. Got my card. and um, But, you know, definitely a, a surreal experience. But, you know, not that there's not pressure, but knowing that you had a job, you had something to rely upon, you had, you know, different options at that time, and knowing that there was something waiting for you at the end and then to kind of flip it on its head and, I mean, that was December, and you know, essentially three or four weeks later, I'm headed to Sony. It's like, oh, this is happening quick. Yeah. So, yeah, so. Definitely a surreal experience. 
Yeah, and so I was going to ask you, so, you know, you go from that knowing knowing you're in and then step on the tee first day on Thursday in Hawaii. You know, what what's that feel like? Well, the 10th hole at Sony is predominantly a downhill – or, sorry, not downhill, a downwind, you know, very drivable par four. Um, and I told myself the whole time, like, I'm going to get up there, I'm a rip driver, I'm going to hit it up on the green. And to this day, like, if I was playing the tournament, I would hit driver on that hole almost every single time, depending on what the situation was. And I got up there and I had the driver out. I had my, I was the first to hit and I got up there and like all the nerves, as far as your first PGA tour shot, the wind was a little bit off the left, but it was downwind. And you start looking and that out of bounds started creeping further and further and further in. And in my mind, by the end of the time I was looking at it, it was in the right edge of the fairway. (laughs) I mean, it was way over there to the right, but, in my mind at the time, it was, it looked close. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I look at my caddy, he's like, what do you want to do? It's like, I'm going to hit seven iron. I'm like seven iron. He's like, yeah, I'll have a full shot. Like I, I can, I can make par with a seven iron. Like just give me a seven iron. I'll hit a sand wedge. Like I, I, I just got to make par and I'll figure this out. And I hit seven iron out there. Um, I hit a horrible wedge shot to like 30 feet and I made it. Birdie, yeah, <laughs> like, see, it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure the two guys I was playing with had closer than me for eagle. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I'll never that conversation of my caddy just like, oh my gosh, my guy is panicking, and uh, which was a hundred percent the case. Yeah, uh, just all the realization of your first ever shot on tour and what that takes into account, and uh, I was such a bonehead. Yeah, <laughs> just like threw it up for a birdie though. Yeah, I made birdie. Uh, it was a little bit – everyone think here's your first tournament or your first shot is number 10. It's like, oh, you drove it up on the green, made birdies. Like, no, I hit seven iron. I'm pretty sure I hit it in the rough too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hacked it up on the green and, and made it a long for birdie. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, oh, man, I think I got some – I still got you. Beauty of technology. Yeah, yeah. technology there for us for a second. Yeah, man. I still got you. Um, no, so then the next, I was going to ask you, so, you know, you got that in early, you know, early part of the season. And then uh, I'm sure this brings back some memories. But when I say, you know, 2011 Greenbrier, um, there's obviously some nerves, you know, on hole 18 on, on that that Sunday, what is, uh, what's the 2011 Greenbrier mean to you? Well, I mean, to go back to that first event, uh, I mean, everyone sees like the end result of the year. And I was like, oh man, you had a great season. It's like, man, I missed my first five cuts ever on tour. It's like, man, I got my head beat in. Uh, <laughs> and there was some strong conversation on my flight to Puerto Rico. I was like, what in the world did I get myself into? Um, and, you know, kind of go from there. But uh, I had started playing really well uh, going into Greenbrier. Um, I played the uh, second and third round and had not made a bogey. And then come out, and I I think I had not missed a fairway either uh, in the second and third round. And I come out that first nine, I'm playing with Anthony Kim, like one of the last rounds he ever played on tour. Hmm. And he shot – Anthony shot 61 on Saturday. He's winning by two. 
and we're playing on Sunday. And first time I'd ever played with like a, like a name in that kind of situation, you know, final group, first final group ever. And, you know, kind of been in that whole situation and go over and, um, uh, I mean, we couldn't have hit it further from each other if we were trying. I mean, he hit it bad, I hit it bad, and, you know, we were just scrounging around. And I remember telling my caddy on walking in number 10, I was like, man, if we can make a couple birdies, I think we can finish in the top 10 and, and you know, salvage a good week. And I made birdie on 10, made birdie on 11, made birdie on 12. And then I made – I hit a good shot in the 14, a part 13, I made a good shot on 14. And made birdie, and I look at him, and we get up on 15 to par three, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, look where we're at!" <laughs> and he's like, I, I, "He just was almost like a deer in headlights. We were just trying to salvage out some kind of an event, you know, halfway decent tournament. And next thing you know, a par 15, then I birdie 16, then we have a three group weight on 17, and the fairway is about 200 yards wide, and I hit it right in the water." <laughs> Hmm. make bogey make bogey and then I got a birdie 18 to get in the playoff it was a perfect number as a nine iron um and then it was very fortunate I had you know 10 minutes to go and I got to do the exact same thing over hmm. again and uh you know perfect scenario I had just done it and uh was able to come out and do it again and uh definitely something you never forget yeah, I, wa I watched the video of it, and literally, if you played those in sequence, you wouldn't know which putt was for which which uh, hole 18 or playoff hole one. It's identical all the way through nearly. Yeah, they were like two inches apart. <laughs> <laughs> so, for me, I mean, what, you know, it, when I – I had two questions on that. So, I, you know, I never played competitive golf, especially at a high level, you know, not even at a high amateur level. When you're out there on Saturday and Sunday, you know, how much in your head are you aware of the scoreboard, aware of the moves, aware of the noises versus just playing your game? I mean, that's easy to say, um, but how aware are you of everything else going on around you and where you need to be or where you're at presently? Uh, it's a little bit of both, and it's kind of a learned thing. Uh, I mean, you hear all sides as far as what guys do and what guys don't. Some guys want to know everything, you know, from the first tee on Thursday to the last tee on Sunday. I kind of think of the situational thing, kind of always be kind of aware in the back of your mind. But, I mean, the moment I let someone else dictate how I'm going to go about it, I mean, unless it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, ultimately I have a game plan with my caddy and, you know, we're going to go out there and try to execute as best we possibly can. And, you know, there may be certain situations that dictate – you know, being slightly more aggressive or, or whatever. But, I mean, for the most part, I mean, you know, when you break it down, golf is not incredibly difficult. The execution of it is difficult, but the overall game plan is not. You know, you drive it as straight as you can, hit it as close as you can, and putt as few as time as possible. <laughs> and when you break it down like that, you know, ultimately that's what you're trying to do every single hole. Now the methodology and the, how you go about it and the planning – is, you know, where you kind of, you know, can get jumbled up or, you know, make some, you know, critiques or so on and so forth. But I think that that's a learned behavior and it's it's tough to not get caught up in some of that at the beginning, especially remember my first event uh, that Tiger played was Farmers there at Torrey Pines. And I remember I had no idea that he hit balls in the back of the range. I just went there because there was no one else there. And I got—I didn't have to wait to hit balls because the range is pretty small. 
and I ended up hitting balls right beside him. And my caddy legitimately looked at me. He's like, you play, you hit your tee shot in 15 minutes and you have not hit a ball. And I just sat there and watched him. (laughs) That was the first time I'd like hit ball or seen him in person. And like, oh man, I got to get ready. (laughs) So, I mean, all that kind of stuff is, is learned and, you know, not that it's, you know, second nature or whatever, but I mean, those guys are trying to do everything that I'm trying to do. And, um, you know, but it t- takes a little bit of experience to get used to all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine we, we watch on TV, but you know, and, and you guys seem like machines sometimes, you know, knock it close, but put to win a tournament, but there's a lot of mental process in there. There's a lot of, you know, whether it's doubts or, or confidence, whatever's playing around in your head, there, there's a lot of, uh, human nature involved in that. Maybe we don't see that yeah. on TV all the time. <laughs> Hey man, sometimes the voices are real. Yeah, hey. it's just it's just it's just a matter of whether or not other people can hear them. Yeah, or not. When you said the thing about the fairway getting smaller and OB getting bigger in uh, Hawaii, I was thinking of Bagger Vance when you know his vision's all getting blurried, and I'm like, man, that's a real thing. I don't care what anybody says when it when it's in your head, nobody else sees it but you do, and that's all that matters. For sure, for sure, yeah. man. Uh, the other thing that I always think about that, like, I always smile when I see it happen to a guy who wins his first tournament on the tour is like, I don't know if you guys think about it, but in my head, I'm like, this guy just punched his ticket to play at Augusta to play, you know, he's in on all the majors for the next year. Um, does that, you know, when did you finally have the realization and kind of come down and go, holy cow, not only did I just win and, and, you know, get some points and a big paycheck, but, you know, I'm going to Augusta National, I'm going to the U.S. Open. When did that cross your mind? No, that was the first thing I thought of. I didn't think about any of that other stuff. Because, I mean, if you look back at any of the stories, like I had an Augusta National pencil in my, uh, in like my yardage book. Oh, wow. And, uh it was very small at the time. I had sharpened it a bunch. And when I played my first Masters in 2012 on the first tee, I knew the starter. He's from Nashville named Toby Wilt, and he gave me a box. Wow. And he said, he said welcome to Augusta National. And um, I still have the box sitting in my gym at my house. And it's like, why do you have a box of pencils? And they open up the lid. They're like, oh, I know what those are. <laughs> that is so cool. So do you still keep your score with some form of an Augusta National pencil? No, I've got one in my, like, just kind of in the side of my yardage book. I mean, people ask about it all the time. But ultimately, I mean, like, I have that very, very first one. I mean, it's it's the metal. I mean, you can't even tell. It's You just see a green pencil. I mean, I used it. Like, that's what I used. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was the, the – I mean, I always keep one in there, just always in the back of your mind, nice to look at. And – but ultimately, man, I, I've lost so many of them now. Hopefully, I've spread them out so other people use them and you know go the same route that I did. Yeah. So I, I've been lucky enough. I I went to Augusta in 2016, um, the year that Spieth won and kind of ran away with it. Um, and obviously, as a golf fan and a golfer, it, it's the ultimate mecca to go as a a patron. What's the coolest thing about being at Augusta as a guy who's playing that week? Well, I was on the on Sunday. I was on the twelfth tee when Louis made the two on number two. 
yeah. That was the that that was the loudest noise I've ever heard in my life. Mm. I was playing with Jeff Jeff Ogilvy, and we had to so that the the scoreboard on eleven is the furthest point away from two green that you can get on the property, and so it's all manual. So you should get that cascade effect as far as you know when the scores posted, the scores posted, and the scores posted, and then it started just building and building and building, and we're like, what in the world has happened? Like that's not like a hole in one on sixteen. That's not like a an eagle on thirteen, or especially we're so close that like we could hear as like something crazy has happened. And Jeff was first to hit on two on twelve, and we he backed off twice because it was like the the people on the on fifteen, the people on you know kind of seeing those scoreboards come up, and then they posted it again right before he's getting ready to hit, and that score and all those people. On 11, 12, you know, 13, there was all, you know, with that kind of, you know, huge gathering and everybody saw it. And then we looked at it like, oh my gosh, he made a two. And it went crazy. <laughs> and that was the loudest noise I've ever heard on the golf course. And actually, I played with Louie last week in Connecticut on Saturday. And um, it was funny because he hit a, a really good shot on one of the holes and he just waved and the lady, you know, there's a bunch of people that live on the course in Connecticut and he waved. He's like, man, I love my fans here in Connecticut. I have so many of them. And I said, speaking of that, I said, when you made a two, that's the loudest noise I've ever heard on the course. And he's like that. It just, you know, what that was like from his experience and to me be the complete on the same course, but it basically as far away as I could get. And just to, to have no idea or no reference of what was taking place and never, felt anything like that on the course and especially for something that I had nothing to do with I was just happened to be there yeah yeah well and like two one I if I remember right you would probably know better than me one is probably also like the highest point on the course mm -hmm. and 11 12 that and 13 tee box is probably like the lowest point so not only is that mm -hmm. rippling in distance but it's going down in that echo chamber and kind of coming back it's it's kind of like an amphitheater almost how it's built like that. It was nuts, man. I, I've, I've never in as much golf tournament golf as I've played, I've never experienced a noise like that, especially to completely come out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, um, you know, that's 2011 and then you, you kind of get on a, a, a little, hot streak there and you win three times in four years um you know at the the true south in 2012 and then you go out to you know, what the farmers is it tory would that have been at tory back then um pretty early in the year and you win there um so you win three times in four years and you become a dad at the same time so i'm curious like for you how you know one and, and i don't say this to open any wounds farmers 2014 is, is your last win um, and, and you became a dad then as well. How has like your approach to the game changed after, you know, you found some success, you, you, you know, you, you got a little more things than golf on the table to look at. How has uh, your career and your approach to tournament weeks since then changed with those things having happened? Yeah, I mean, anyone that's become a parent and kind of understands, uh, um, you know, just a sense of priority and not that, you know, golf's my passion. And, you know, I love my job and feel very fortunate to have my job on the PGA tour, but I mean, golf is what I do. It's not who I am. Um, I, I work very hard at it. I try to be the best I possibly can, but try not to let the score in the box define at the end of the day. And I want to be the best husband and father I can for my wife and my kids. And 
and you know represent myself and my family as best and the companies that have chosen to come alongside me as best I can while I'm in and out of the ropes on tour and you know I just think that you know that big transition period of becoming a father and you know, kind of all the health stuff that I was going through you know in 14 15 16 and you know just everything that kind of transpired you know gave me a new fresh perspective on you know just everything and understanding that it is a true blessing to be able to do it pursue something that you want to do at the highest level as a dream and actually become into reality and you know, kind of see that all come to fruition and to know that you know there are going to be ups and downs and ebbs and flows throughout career and you know it made the the bad days a little bit easier to deal with and the good days a little bit more enjoyed and I think that you know there's a lot of perspective that comes from you know struggling and and kind of going through some some stuff in the public that may or may not have wanted to be in the public but at the end of the day like I don't really hide from any of that and you know try to you know kind of speak into that and let people know that you know I was someone that wasn't I didn't take very good care of myself I wasn't a very good steward of the opportunities I had you know in professional golf and you know from a, a pure lifestyle standpoint and uh, I took for granted a lot and was very fortunate to have a lot of good people come around me and you know help me make some better decisions and kind of find some answers to you know a path that you know I was headed down bad that may or may not involve professional golf but um, you know kind of put my life and my body and you know kind of some stuff off the course and a little bit more of the focal point and priority and you know be able to make the changes that I have and put in position to to be where I am today. Yeah, no, and, and so you bring up the fitness stuff, obviously, and, um, you know, I, we could talk to it. I don't really care. I don't think half the people um, that – I don't think any of the people who listen to this, one, maybe even know or two care either um, about the suspension, um, and I've heard you address that head-on plenty of times, so I know you don't run from that at all. Um, what I'm more curious to know about is, obviously, if you look at a side-by-side -side from when you won – the Greenbrier to you last week tied for sixth. It's like, Oh, this guy looks a lot different. What was the moment for you that sparked that change where, you know, it's easy for everybody to sit here and say, oh, I'm going to make a change. But what was the moment for you that changed, you know, basically changed your life in a sense? Uh, I was in a bunch of doctor's offices uh, throughout and I basically, you know, everyone kind of has the aha moment or like the, Oh no, this is real. And I was at a guy, um, basically, I've said it in a bunch of interviews, it was a combination of House and Colonel Sanders. <laughs> uh, and he was a diagnostician for the adrenal system. He was an endocrinologist. And I spent two days with him at UCLA. And he looked at me and uh, he said, before we start, I'm going to be very honest. He said, there's very often that people come in my office and they have things that cannot be cured. And like my jaw hit the floor. I said, sir, if I'd have known that, I don't know if I would have come here. And I, he said, I was like, does that mean that he said, yes. He said, I tell people every single day they have stuff that cannot be cured and inevitable is, is death. I'm like, I mean, like, okay, I'm here. Let's figure this out. And I mean, I got tested for everything under the sun. You name it. I did it <laughs> and there was just uh it was a, a very long process and a very eye-opening experience to truly how precious life is and um 
how I just a very stark reality of how much I had taken for granted what I had and uh, not I treated my body very well. My diet was horrible. My sleep habits were rough. Uh, exercise was sort of irrelevant. And, and just understanding you can't do what we do at the highest level against the best players in the world. You can't do what I was doing no matter what you were doing, let alone trying to be a professional athlete playing against the best players in the world. And eventually it was a sliding scale of what was going to give out. And um, I remember getting in the car, getting in the Uber, headed back to the airport. And I called my wife told her everything was taking place and we joke about every time I go back to LA I said I wonder if we go back to that UCLA medical center and see my old self just walking around there somewhere hoping that someone feels bad for him because wow. uh, ultimately uh, I mean it was no one's fault but my own uh, how I'd gotten to that point and I take full responsibility and ownership of that um, and I feel very fortunate to have some people come around me and help me you know kind of be the intermediary to help me make the decisions to get me to where I am today. Yeah. And so, you know, one, that's amazing to hear, you know, I have goosebumps just listening to it, but one of the things I, I see you always post and talk about, um, and I'm curious the origin story behind it is the rent is due pay the man mantra. Um, <laughs> yeah. and when in that process did that kind of walk me through how you came up with that and really what it means to you versus just what it sounds like. I have the, you know, fortunate opportunity to train with a lot of people over the last few years. And um, one of my friends introduced me uh, to a, a former Navy SEAL, highly competitive CrossFit athlete, Josh Bridges, out of uh, San Diego. And we were playing the San Diego tournament, and Josh invited me to his house to go train. And um, we'd gotten to his house, and I knew him a little bit, but not like to the point where I know him now. And basically I'm getting my stuff ready and we're getting ready to train and work out. And I'm by no means doing what they're doing, but just kind of we're training together, but not doing the same thing, if that makes sense. And he said, man, I hope you're, I hope you're ready to pay the man. I'm like, man, I am not paying you to work out with you. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I am, that's not what I signed up for. If that's the case, I'll just leave, man. I'm, I'm not paying money to, train at your house and I thought the guy was just trying to be a jerk and he's like no man that's not what this is about and basically just kind of going over the the old um idea of you know success is never owned it's it's rented and rents due every day pay the man and I kind of I always I like that I like the mentality I like just taking everything head on and I kind of adapted into the the same philosophy is I mean you have two things you can control every single day your attitude and your effort if you control those things, you know, ultimately determines the outcome of your day and you, you can kind of handle anything on it. I just adapted to the two things you control. Everything's every single day, attitude and effort rents to on both every single day, pay the man. And so I, everyone thinks it's from rounders in the movie or, you know, some type of like, I, I didn't create it. I, I adapted it from another saying and kind of made it applicable to my life to where you just take extreme ownership of, of what you're doing on a day to day basis. And those are the two things in every situation that I have ultimate control over. And, you know, that's my responsibility to manage those to the best of my ability. Yeah, no, it's awesome. I, I'll, you know, even somebody from the outside like me, you know, I read it and, you know, if I haven't got a workout in for the day, I'm kind of <laughs> in my head going, man, 
he's not wrong and here I am, you know, haven't knocked my, my share out. So you might be motivating people with that and you don't even know you're motivating them somewhere down the line. So. Yeah, I have it stamped on my wedges. I've got it, you know, in my barn at my house where my gym is and everyone's like, ah, oh, like, it's about money, man. Like, like, no, man, it literally has absolutely nothing to do with anything financial whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, go from there. But uh, Josh is a great dude and, uh, you know, been super influential as far as helping me in my kind of fitness and health journey. And but that was the whole story uh, as far as how that all transcended. I thought he was trying to be a huge jerk <laughs> and charge me money to train in this house. Yeah, yeah. No, and so that, you know, we, we obviously talked about your career and then talked about the fitness side. I, I think on the last note for the fitness stuff, you know, it's cool to follow – you know, you kind of give us an insight into your weeks, basically, um, you know, and how training plays a part in that, um, where, you know, 10, 20 years ago, people didn't get that insight. But one of the things that I think is cool is you kind of take this passion for fitness and you've utilized it for golf workout of the day, golf WOD. Um, and I signed up, I have not done nearly as many of the workouts as, uh, a lot of people have, have, but I do get the emails. Um, what, kind of explain how that came about and what, what your uh, kind of intent behind that was. Well, my a buddy of mine kind of met, met through social media, Michael Denning has uh, done an incredible job to create a platform to kind of expose people to a little bit of, uh, um, a little bit of intensity is not a bad thing. Golf can be pretty monotonous, uh, a little bit mundane as far as, you know, how you practice and prep and, and the idea of some, you know, higher intensity training and, you know, with some rotary uh, power based out of the ground uh, with a little bit of exertion at the end is, uh, it's never hurt anyone. And uh, it kind of appealed to me and he reached out and said, would you help us write some workouts and, you know, kind of be a ambassador for, you know, a different side of golf training. And um, that uh, appealed to me big time. And it's been kind of cool to see. we got an app coming out um, here very shortly waiting on approval from Apple, but, uh, all the beta stuff has been in the works and uh, looking forward to having that come out and come to all fruition. So people can kind of see what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's cool to tune into the, your stories and see like all these people, you know, different wherever they're at, you know, whatever their golf ability is, they're still knocking these workouts out. So you kind of like what we do, you know, use golf as an excuse to bring people together. Somehow you're, you're doing the same thing just through a different avenue and it's all because of golf in the end. Yeah, ultimately, I mean, it's everything's scalable. Everything's for no matter what your fitness level is or whatever. I mean, there's going to be options for every person and uh, it's been a cool thing to kind of be a part of. Yeah. So, uh, man, I got, there's obviously we could sit here and talk all night um, about a lot of different avenues. We're, we're trying to you know, and encompass a lot of years in a, you know, 45 minute to an hour conversation. But um, I always ask three questions at the end, um, same questions I ask to everybody. Um, so I'll be interested to get your feedback. But first one, obviously being a, a sports guy, you know, across the board, um, what's your favorites? You, you might have mentioned it earlier. What's your favorite sports moment that you've ever witnessed as a spectator or a fan? I was uh, I was an Under Armour athlete for nine years, and when I lived in Phoenix in the for like six months uh, of the year for the last six years, you know, kind of during the winter, and when uh, the Patriots played the Seahawks in Phoenix, 
I got to go. I was on the front row of the 10-yard line in the end zone when Russell Wilson threw that interception. And we actually have a picture of my wife grabbing the back of my shirt as I, I don't know what I was doing. I was apparently trying to go on the field. The game wasn't even over. Um, and just growing up in New England, being a huge Patriots fan and kind of everything that went into that. Um, and then being able to go home and sleep in my own bed was, uh, as far as any sporting event that I've ever been to, that was one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had in my life. When, uh, when something like that happens, I think you just lose all consciousness of like, wait, I don't belong on the field. You just, of yeah. the adrenaline takes over. My, you're, yeah. You're, my wife, my, my wife was like, what, what were you about to do? And not only was I going to go on the field, but it was like a 15 to 20 foot drop from where we were to the ground. I don't like, I don't know what was about to happen, but thankfully she reeled me in and was like, what are you doing? That's, and I mean, you, if anyone remembers, like the game was clearly not over. Like there was time left. Yeah. I think you had to take a couple of knees. <laughs> so I was to get a safety or something. Yeah, two more questions, Dan, and I appreciate it. Um, so, favorite sports moment you ever witnessed? Uh, similar question. Favorite sports moment you ever participated in? I mean, no one – you never forget your first, uh, you know, first – I mean, the first win, just everything, all the experience of something you've dreamed about your whole entire life and, and everything. But from a different side, that has nothing to do with golf. Um, we went on a Labor Day trip, and – my son saw that they were doing a family run and my son and he just turned seven. So he was six at the time. He's like, dad, I want to do it. Like, okay, let's do it. And it was a 5k. And I should have definitely scouted out the course. Cause I felt like the worst parent of all time. <laughs> uh, Cause it went, the first mile was legitimately almost straight up hill. And he's six by far the youngest participant. And I told him from the very beginning, I was like, this could be brutal, but we are not quitting. I said, the first moment we quit, it's going to be easier to quit the next time. But we'll walk. I'm not going to carry you. You're going to finish this. You said you want to do this. We're going to do it. And we finished. he ran. He was six years old, and he did a 5K in 42 minutes. Wow. At six years old. And I was literally the as proud a moment as a dad. And I'm like – texting my wife like we've got to figure out something to celebrate because he's I mean he's crying he's yelling at me just uh I mean I should have done my due diligence I had no idea I just thought all right you know he wants to do this I'll do it with him but I remember coming down and just seeing the look in his eye when my wife and my daughter surprised him at the end and they had a sign for him and just everything but that's not necessarily like a as a sporting event I guess but to actually be on the outside and just seeing all the range of emotions and how that started and, you know, how just perseverance and just not quitting and instilling that at a young age is, is pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, the ripple effect of that, he won't realize for a long time, but someday it'll all come full circle. Uh, just so we can get out of here and avoid another hiccup. Uh, last question, man. And you've touched on some heavy moments, you know, personally in your own life. Um, when you lay your head down, down, you know, trying to win tournaments and, and be a dad and be a husband. You got a lot of boxes you're checking. Uh, what keeps you up at night? Oh, man, uh, unknown. Uh, <laughs> say a prayer, trust the man upstairs and, and know that, you know, he's ultimately in control and, you know, kind of manage that situation. But I think anything involving my kids, any parent, uh, 
you know, had nightmares about just any kind of disaster or whatever, but just understanding that's all noise and ultimately it's not in our control and, and trusting that and, you know, rest pretty well at night. Good man. All right. Well, Scott, I appreciate you taking uh, some an hour out of your time on a Tuesday uh, before a tournament week. So I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you very much, man. I'll be in touch. Yep. Take care.